This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always mas. Welcome to another multi-platform broadcast of Nuestra Palabra. Latino writers having their say. I'm Tony Diaz, the Libro Traficante. Today, we're talking to our dear friend, Dr. Jesse Esparza. Hey, first of all, great to get to chat with you. I've seen you at some of our readings on the community, but thank you for coming out for this platform. So, como estas, hermano? Oh, I'm, I'm good, my brother. Thank you for having me and for allowing me to come for a little bit and share some of this research and really providing the space, as you always do, man. You provide spaces for persons to share their work uh, and to uh, showcase their talent. And, you know, I can't thank you enough. So thank you. No, and thank you so much for educating the youth, standing up for community, and congratulations on your book, which we'll be focusing on today, Raza Schools, The Fight for Latino Educational Autonomy in a West Texas Borderlands Town. And I'm also proud to say that you will form part of the Texas Authors Series, which takes place at the Latino Bookstore at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center in San Antonio. And the showcase is every second Friday of the month, which in November falls on Friday, November 10th. This is actually in conjunction with our friends over at uh, Macri. And we're so glad that we can team up with them with all the work they do on promoting Mexican American civil rights. And of course, also reading that night will be Alma Garcia with her, her new book. But we'd like to start the show off by having Dr. Esparza read an excerpt from the book, give you a taste of it, and then we'll talk about it and talk about all the amazing topics that it brings up. So, ladies and gentlemen, reading from his book, Raza Schools, The Fight for Latino Educational Autonomy in the West Texas Borderlands Town, Dr. Jesse Esparza, the microphone is yours. Appreciate you. Thank you. Having little success persuading Del Rio ISD, the county superintendent, and military officials to end the transfer agreement, Omero Sigala approached TEA for help. He lodged a formal complaint to ask them if they would intervene in rectifying this wrongdoing. But TEA sided with Del Rio and it sided with the county superintendent, and it allowed the transfer agreement to stand. Seeing no other option, Romero Sigala, the superintendent for San Felipe ISD, sought help from the courts. Unfortunately for him, the courts were no help, arguing that the transfer agreement was an issue that only TEA, the same body that refused to undo the agreement, could resolve. Frustrated, Omero Sigala turned to the Office of Health, Education, and Welfare to make his case. Finally, getting the assistance he needed, HEW, or Hugh, conducted a thorough investigation of the situation and determined that the transfer of Bay students who were predominantly white endorsed racial segregation and violated the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Finally, Sigala had the leverage to nullify the transfer agreement and went before the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights to testify about why the transfer issue would end. The hearings took place in December of 1968 at Our Lady of the Lake University in San Antonio. 
Representing San Felipe was the superintendent Omero Sigala, accompanied by several teachers like Ilalio Calderon, who was the director of federal programs, and the district attorney for the school, Mike Gonzalez, and several other faculty members. The hearing's goal was to gather information on matters that afflicted Mexican-Americans, such as police brutality, economic disparities, and educational inequalities. On the topic of education, Nomero Sigala and others from San Felipe testified before the commission. They gave a history of the community and the genesis of the controversy regarding the transfer students from the base. They informed the commission on how Del Rio, the county, and Air Force officials contrived to keep students out of the district by purposely excluding or distorting information about San Felipe's schools to parents. They presented as evidence several assignments conducted by students a few months earlier who were interviewing families for a class project and whose research had revealed that many of them had never heard of the schools in San Felipe ISD. Furthermore, their research showed that Del Rio officials spoke negatively about the San Felipe School District, convincing parents that their schools were run down and that they were dangerous. One lady says she would never send her children to those dirty schools, testified Aurelio Montemayor, the teacher who oversaw the students' projects. Montemayor's testimony caught the attention of several commissioners, including Dr. Hector P. Garcia, who grew irritated with discovering the school and military officials were making disparaging remarks about San Felipe. Seeing that kind of behavior before and understanding the races and classes implication of those comments, Dr. Garcia was incensed. Ultimately, Omero Sigala argued that the agreement was unlawful, that it denied San Felipe federal monies it rightfully owned, and, and it needed to be terminated. Dr. Garcia, who Montemayor recalled, was supportive and a much needed ally, and he agreed. there, Tony, is you have a small clip uh, from one of the chapters in the book Rasa Schools uh, that has come out on the 19th of September. It's, it's with OU Press. It is um, the fourth book in a series uh, from the University of Oklahoma Press, New Directions in Tejano History. Um, and I'm talking about in this later chapter, sort of this problem that has emerged between the school district that I examined in Rasa School, San Felipe ISD, and the fight that they were having with the neighboring school district, Del Rio ISD, over students. And this fight uh, would evolve and really sort of begin to snowball and ultimately lead to what uh, eventually becomes a demise of the first and perhaps only completely controlled Mexican-American school district in the history of the state of Texas, that is to say the San Felipe Independent School District. There's so many ironies in there. Uh, and I'm glad you started with this uh, fifth chapter because that seems to be this crisis points between different ways to organize schools and community, it appears. No, it, is the fundamental issue schools depend on warm bodies, um, you know, students in seats for funding? Is that the essential fight? Is it over that, among other things? Yes, it's that and it's several other things. The transfer controversy, as it's known, as it's called there, was only one of several things that perplexed this district 
and that really bedeviled them their entire existence. This school district was founded in 1929 on the onset of the coming Great Depression. Uh, it was founded uh, in uh, the late 1920s, early 1930s, at a height at the height of Jim Crow, no less. That is to say, at a time in where Mexican Americans were victims of several kinds of things that oppressed them, like segregation, disenfranchisement, environmental discrimination, police brutality, and so on and so on. And you know, this district then, uh, a small district, a working class district. Uh, a district that was expanding but not fast enough, uh, was growing in scholastic populations, uh, and then ultimately found itself competing for federal dollars, federal monies with neighboring school district, Del Rio ISD, which was older and larger and more affluent, which also had an sort of this exp aggressive expansionist agenda that would oftentimes try to annex and incorporate sections of the San Felipe community to take away their autonomy and those kinds of things. and. Uh, it, it was this agreement that they had made because San Felipe struggled with, with spaces and, and, and it, it didn't have enough money to expand to accommodate some 700 children who were the, the kids of, of persons who worked at one of the military bases, Laughlin Air Force Base is the base in question here. Mm -hmm. It's a military installation that was founded there in 1941. Uh, and then it was sort of shut down and then it was recommissioned in the 1950s. Uh, and when they recommissioned it, they built housing complexes on top of that military base so, so that people can live and work there. And that base is li literally sitting within the boundaries of San Felipe ISD. And so all of the kids that lived in that housing complex needed to attend the schools in San Felipe, but they didn't. They attended the schools in Del Rio. Uh, and as such, um, the district San Felipe uh, lost out on a lot of, uh, they're known as impact funds, uh, but they're federal dollars that are associated the federal government pays school districts to educate the children of persons who are connected to the military in some form or fashion. And so even persons who work on military bases can, you know, get these federal dollars for these districts. And San Felipe needed that money. It was thirsty for that money and it needed to, that money to expand buildings, to, re, you know, to recuperate and renovate buildings. I had other plans to build new schools and those kinds of things. Uh, and it just it wasn't getting it because those students were going somewhere else. And the fight was to get them to the district. They belong to us. We can educate them. They need to come here. And it turned into a major, major issue that's ultimately going to force both school districts that sort of coexisted separately. Then now to merge together by way of consolidation in 1971. Uh, and it's going to open up a new can of worms, if you will, once this new merger happens. And there's all kinds of infighting, political fighting and infighting among teachers and students, uh, administrators, and, and it becomes a hot mess, as they might say. Let, let me ask you this, because this is all very fascinating and is very important historically. Help us understand, because we're, we're hearing a lot of terms we hear now, consolidated school districts, um, you know, retention, student enrollment. So those terms are still around we're hearing about the Texas Education Agency. So um, it's it's terrifying because there's still issues involving all those terms and agencies. Having said that, um, can you explain for us the difference between an autonomous school district and what we can imagine as, for example, the Houston Independent School District and wh why this particular school district was so vital to Mexican history? Yeah, no, that that's that's a, that's a great question and ask. Um, so you know, I, autonomy is one of the themes that I use to sort of craft this story, and one of the things that I try to weave throughout each chapter. 
And by autonomous, I, you know, I, I essentially mean that this was a community that was self-sufficient. This was a community that was completely in control of several of its institutions. This community has its origins that date back to the mid 1800s. Uh, and these were Mexicanos who were coming up from what would be today the north and northwestern parts of Mexico. Uh, and they would come into this territory uh, and they would very immediately begin to build an insular environment. And they would, for example, uh, create institutions as they saw fit and institutions that were designed to fit the needs of that community. So for example, as a, for instance, they would establish several religious centers. They would establish, for example, the Mexican Baptist Church, the Mexican Presbyterian Church, the Mexican Methodist Church, the Mexican Catholic Church. And it was sort of to be these large denominations within this small sort of community. And, and it speaks to the religious diversity that, that mm -hmm. existed and it exists in Latino communities. But these were institutions that were founded by Mexican and Mexican-Americans that were managed and run by Mexican and Mexican-Americans and that were aimed to improve and uplift the Mexican and Mexican-American community. And it isn't just institutions like religious centers. They also opened up countless businesses. I mean, from barbershops to newspaper stands, to restaurants, to hotels, to wow. gambling centers. I mean, to you name it, that all, I mean, it would maybe a business on every other block in this small residential neighborhood. And then ultimately uh, they would also then in 1929 found their, in, their own school district and the school district, they would establish that as, you know, with the same goal, with the same goal in mind, was to uplift the people, to provide an education for their children in where they were free from segregation, in where they were free from a hostile curriculum, in where they were free to really determine the educational destinies of their kids. And in doing so, they would then be able to provide their children with what we might consider today a liberal arts education or a STEAM and STEM education, uh, as opposed to just providing them with a curriculum that prepared them for the service industry. As many people can tell you, those kinds of curriculums, uh, you know, not to, you know, speak disparagingly about those, but if that is the only thing that is being offered to this population, then that is what the issue is. What should be offered is a variety of curriculums that would prepare students to go beyond the trade if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what San Felipe did. It prepared them to withstand the rigors of an institution of higher learning, uh, and it would graduate uh, high schoolers from an accredited uh, TEA-recognized uh, school district, and they would uh, enroll into institutions of higher learning in places like San Antonio, like San Marcos, like Austin, and they would get degrees in business and in, mm -hmm. in economics and in advertising, and they become journalists and they become artists, and they become teachers, and many of them come back to the district and work in the same classrooms that they once sat in as students. And, and they were able to do that because they managed those school districts. They were in control at every level of that school district from top down. They were the school board members, they eventually became the superintendents and the principals. They were the teachers. And overwhelmingly, it was Mexican-American. It was a Mexican-American faculty, staff, and administration that managed these schools and that served overwhelmingly a Mexican-American student population. These students were graduating in higher numbers. Uh, that is until 1971, until they're forced to merge uh, by way of a lawsuit that says, hey, well, look, you know, you are segregated institution because you are 98% Mexican-American, you were violating the uh, 1954 Brown decision, Brown 1 and Brown 2, and you have to integrate or you have to consolidate to achieve integration.
you've just described <laughs> what I think a lot of our listeners would call the ideal, <laughs> the ideal school. Um, and I think perhaps the question people might ask is, hey, why not, you know, uh, keep pushing it. And I think even right now, as in this current day and age, you know, Houston Independent School District has been taken over by TEA because of, um, according to Texas Education Agency, uh, falling short of their indicators for a certain achievement in certain areas. Here you just described a school district that was built by the community for the community and was able to deliver success. Um, also, can you talk about the autonomy then seems to be also related to the fact that they had the infrastructure, they were able to get federal money, um, you know, I imagine state money as well, and they could allocate it, decide the curriculum. Um, were those other elements of the autonomy too? They, they were. Um, a, a lot of the autonomy that is birthed in this community, uh, it, it's really homegrown, and, and much of it comes by way of international movements. Uh, the revolution in Mexico, for example, is going to really sort of sweep the area uh, so that San Felipe, this community, uh, the city of Del Rio in general, but San Felipe, the, the, the Mexican-American community in, in, that sits in the city, that community specifically would uh, have a lot of persons who would be involved uh, in the coming revolution. Uh, you would have these intellectuals and you would have these readers and these writers who would help spread sort of these ideas of liberty and democracy and freedom. I mean, and liberation through, you know, through, through you know, managing your own institutions. Those are the kinds of things that would come to really solidify this growing and, and, and now becoming entrenched sense of autonomy. Uh, but the people, right, I mean, Mexican-Americans uh, are, are a, you know, a population that, that find ways to resist and to survive. They don't sit back and allow these things to happen to them. They have a, a, a long history of activism uh, and, and they engage in a variety of forms of activism in what our friend, Dr. Cintia Orozco might call the spectrum of resistance in that Mexican-Americans would use the courts, for example, to destroy segregation, or they would uh, form organizations, anti-lynching organizations, for example, civic-minded organizations, for example, or they would uh, use uh, other kinds of political influences, or they would engage in protest politics, taking it to the streets. They would do a variety of things. And what I have done is I said, well, look, this is a, an important case study because what Mexican-Americans at San Felipe did is they formed their own school system. And that too should be included in this spectrum of resistance, not to say that it's not, but this is an important case study that also needs uh, to be uh, uh, discussed at some length. And, and they, they were able to do these things. So all this to say is that that autonomy was inherent in that community. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't something that uh, was taught to them and brought to them. And while there are international factors and other factors that help solidify it, it was this community that understood that true liberation came from self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and not having to need uh, things from outsiders who historically have been very hostile to them. And so they wanted to do what was best for their kids across the board, and that meant also managing their own schools.
And what I really am fascinated by the picture that you paint with your writing and the research, it goes against what I believe is the current perception of Mexican American neighborhoods, Latino communities, where you may have um, parents that can't get involved in the um, uh, running of the school, um, are working so hard that they cannot attend the parent teacher organizations or cannot get involved in advocating for a curriculum. And I would also say that's why you've got schools that are majority Latino, where you've got Anglo parents dictating what's in the curriculum. Um, I'd like to cast that as the current picture. In some cases, obviously there's, there's nuances, but I would say that's the corporate media perception. You paint a picture completely against that, where we not only have the capacity and interest but all the intellectual talent, et cetera. Uh, and I think you really picked a great a great case study to make that case. Uh, did you want those parallels to what's going on now? Or is it is that just something that we can't escape every decade? The book is, is, is very timely for that reason. I think that it sort of, it speaks to a moment in where a community had the formula. It had the formula to really provide an education that did two things. One is it prepared their students to withstand the rigors of college. Mm -hmm. Two, it also prepared them to live outside of the community if they decided to move outside of that community where they, might, they won't have the same kind of insular protection that they had in San Felipe. It prepared them also to live in what could be considered a very hostile society. This community did those things. I mean, the, the community, don't get me wrong, the community struggled. It's a working class community. They managed those, those, those buildings at, as best they could. Oftentimes they would get monies and they would, I mean, they would fund it. They would fund it through their taxes. They would vote on these bonds and they would fund the construction of these schools. And oftentimes they knew how to apply for funds to assist in those. And they got them. It was rare, but they got it. Uh, but oftentimes what happened is the community quite literally contributed to the funding and the building of those schools. They would show up with brick and mortar. They would show up and donate tools. They would donate material. They would show up and donate their labor and, and quite literally themselves with their hands and their, their sweat and tears, you know, put those buildings together. They did the auditorium that way. They built their high school that way. They built the Memorial Stadium that was behind it at one time that way. And, and so that these institutions, these school buildings are more than just school buildings. They become very much the most important institutions in that community. They become the city hall and the Carnegie Hall for them. Mm -hmm. They become sanctuary when people are displaced from floods. They become the centers for cultural production. They become places where food drives and clothing drives and 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 uh, drives to to inoculate and provide vaccines. Right, we're sort of still in the age of COVID, providing vaccines to the population who were afflicted and didn't have access to healthcare services. Uh, and so this is what these schools did, and these schools did more than just educate the kids. These schools worked to and launched several kinds of campaigns to really uplift and elevate the community out of poverty, out of distress, uh, you know, uh, to assist the community that was neglected, to assist the community that was oppressed by by bigoted policies. This is what these schools did, and 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 so they struggled. They were working class, but they maintained it as best they could. Uh, and, you know, they paid the bill sometimes and sometimes they didn't, but they got it done. That is until federal government intervention, that is until politics at play is really going to disrupt 
sort of this idea of autonomy. And that's one of the things that I argue in this book, Tony, is that while, while segregation disadvantages the Latino student in very major significant ways, in this case, integration disrupted that autonomy. Integration disrupted this long practice of going up through these schools and graduating uh, as they now had to integrate with a neighboring school district and the curriculum changed, faculty changed, where they sat in, in, in buildings changed, how they got to these buildings, all of those things changed. And, and while they are in the same city and while they are in now the same district, everything seemed foreign to these Mexican-American mm -hmm. students who now have to sort of end, you know, start the school year and end the school year with persons who don't look like them, with persons mm -hmm. who don't understand them and persons who don't maybe care to learn of their history and their culture. I'm not saying that I support segregation. I'm saying that segregation, you know, sort of uh, disadvantages students in very major significant ways. What I'm saying in this unique case study, it did the opposite. It disadvantaged them after they were integrated and they seem to have a formula for making sort of this insular environment work for them. Well, and again, it also um, plays with this age old situation where Mexican-Americans are not exactly a race, but we're treated as such when it's convenient to others to disenfranchise us, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and there you have that, that example because it's not that simple as you allude to. Dr. Lupe Salinas at your institution as well, he writes in his book, Legally White, Socially Brown. Uh, and then you got uh, Dr. Guadalupe San Miguel who writes uh, Brown, Not White with the later on. So where, where we talk about, where he talks about Mexican dominant schools being segregated, but all of a sudden we're white, you know, when it's convenient to the system. So you really touch on this powerful moment in history where that's applied early on for a school that's had success for several decades. Talk about other factors, other factors that you'd like to touch on that that then uh, help the this other school district encroach on the success of this school that we may not have touched on. Uh, you know, the other thing was, you know, I sort of talk about the Rio ISD as a very sort of aggressive expansionist kind of school district. And that oftentimes, uh, while in cahoots with county leaders, they would make these decisions without consulting the people of San Felipe to right, sort of occupy spaces in this neighborhood. Now, generally speaking, the city of Durio has a long history of racial segregation in public facilities, certainly in the schools and, and across the board. Uh, and so oftentimes they would not care to sort of mess with or interact with sort of that side of town, if you would like to say it that way. But every now and then the district was interested in occupying things that would improve its tax revenue. The Real ISD um, was always in debt because it was expanding and it had new facilities. And in doing so, it sort of borrowed a lot of money and owed a lot of money. And so it needed to increase its tax rate um, to be able to work off some of that debt. But this idea that they could, you know, at any time take the things that they wanted, that they needed for their own benefit without any input from this community, that sort of speaks to a longer history of colonialism. And the book covers this, and, and 
you know, you see examples of this time and again throughout the years here. And this is, in fact, one of the reasons why this school district was founded, because in 1928, the same school district, Del Rio ISD, uh, was again trying to annex facilities that existed in this Mexican-American neighborhood that it needed to tax in order to eliminate a debt. And so they attempted to annex sort of these original schoolhouses that were in this community. And Raza said, no way, absolutely not. Wow. Who have you asked? Where are the signatures? Where was the vote that was done? You have not done anything legally in the right, you have not done things the right way that will give you permission to take these. And so they, they took them to court. They took them to court. They funded and purchased and, and, and funded wow. the legal fees and all these kinds of things. And, and then they won. I mean, here it is, right? This is 1928. This is 1928. Mexican Americans are using the legal system and the justice system, which has not been friendly to Mexican Americans, but they use it anyway. And they win and they stop, right? Del Rio ISD from incorporating these schools. And then they say, well, look, we're still going to be susceptible to annexation attempts if we continue to remain under the auspices of the county, because that's who was managing those two early schoolhouses, mm -hmm. was the county. Valverde County is the name. Says we are still going to be under threat of annexation or other kind of aggressive takeover attempts unless we incorporate. And that's Mexican Americans saying that. That's Mexican Americans saying we need to do to our schools what we have done to everything else in this community. We need to make them ours. Mm -hmm. And so then what they did is they incorporated and they voted and they submitted paperwork to TEA. Seemingly it's an easy process. And they had the right votes and the right signatures and they got it done. And in order to be an official accredited ISD, they need to have a high school because they didn't have a high school yet. So they only had two elementaries and they're called elementaries, but they serve students up until about the eighth grade. So they're elementary slash middle schools in many ways, but then they built a high school and they construct that in 1930. It's the newest building. It's a brand new building. It's a beautiful building. It's sort of, you know, if, if I can describe it this way, you sort of have this central hub, then you have these long wings and hallways that, that run east and west of it. Uh, and here, here it is now for the first time in the history of this community, they now have their own high school and they begin to populate those classrooms with these eighth graders, ninth graders, juniors, seniors, and now these persons are graduating. And so this is what is happening in this community. Uh, and a lot of that happens because Mexican Americans are resisting against this hostile takeover. Absolutely not. We're going to fight you and we're going to fight you, you know, tooth and nail, we're going to fight you and we're going to fight you and we're going to win and they won. So we're talking to Dr. Jesse Esparza. His amazing book is titled Raza Schools, The Fight for Latino Educational Autonomy in the West Texas Border Town. It is now out, and he will also form part of the Texas Author Series at the Latino Bookstore at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center. The main events there are every second Friday of the month. So this one will be November 10th. If you happen to tune in after that date, don't be too sad because that means that then you have an excuse to travel to the Latino bookstore there in San Antonio on the campus, the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center. And Dr. Esparza's books will be in stock. So you can also tell your friends to go there. You can share the link to this podcast and get them to get the book. And you can have a whole 
class on that for community centers or for your friends as well. Right now, Dr. Spassi, you were kind enough then to have another section that you want to read to us. Would love to, uh, to have you share that with us and talk about it on the other end. So uh, if you're tuning in, this is the Nuestra Palabra multi-platform broadcast on 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston's community station. If you can support, we hope that you will go to kpft.org or call 713-526-5738 and make a donation to your Houston community station in the name of Nuestra Palabra so we can broadcast wonderful history over the air at 100,000 watts outside the classrooms. Take it into the classroom. Take it in your family library. Take it in your underground library. But we're bringing it to you. So we hope that you will help us pitch in so that we can keep bringing it to you. Uh, so right now, Dr. Jesse Esparza, the microphone is yours. Thank you, Tony. This is from Chapter 2. And this is when the community is, is, is forming their school district, which they argue and which I also argue is the only school district of its kind to ever be forged in Texas at the height of Jim Crow, no less. And this is an excerpt from that chapter. Because of the emerging political activity and the rise of potent civil rights movement among Mexican-Americans, the San Felipe community espoused a new kind of resistance to harassment from outside forces. Following their victory in the annexation cases, Santos Garza, Hernan Cadena, and Rodolfo Gutierrez, a local lawyer and one of the founders of LULAC Council Number 18, began discussing the possibility of establishing an independent school district. While there were some doubts, most agreed that an ISD was the best method for halting any future interference from Del Rio or any other districts. And to their surprise, the process for incorporation seemed relatively easy. All that was required was a petition by the district voters asking to incorporate. And once county officials determine the request as valid, they can approve incorporation. Seemingly, the one challenge was collecting the required signatures of the qualified property tax paying voters, but they secured those with little trouble. With everything in order, they submitted their petition and waited for news from county officials who held a special meeting and a special hearing on July 27, 1929 to review this application. And after finding no discrepancies, they accepted the petition, declaring that the newly created district could now enjoy all the rights, powers, and privileges awarded to any independent school district authorized by state's laws. Officially established on July 27, 1929, that day marked when the community formed the San Felipe Independent School District, believed to be the only school system in Texas organized by Mexican-Americans during the Jim Crow era. With modest experience and challenging roads ahead, they formed perhaps the first and only Mexican-American-controlled independent school district in the state's history. Because the district was Latino majority, with just a few white and black students, technically it was a segregated institution. However, for the people, San Felipe ISD was a place where they could be free from segregation since Del Rio ISD and every other school district in Texas had a history of segregating Mexican-American students. Moreover, San Felipe ISD would also be a place to protect students from the institutional racism that existed in other districts. This resonated with Eloy Padilla and encouraged him to transfer to San Felipe ISD. While attending the schools in Del Rio, he recalls people receiving physical punishment if they spoke Spanish and became expelled if they refused their punishment. 
And while speaking English was stressed in this new district, no student ever received corporal punishment for speaking another language. Students were protected from that kind of treatment, recalls Raul Valdez. It was hard for us to feel racism there in San Felipe because we were all Chicano. listening to Dr. Jesus Esparza, Associate Professor in the Department of History, Geography, and General Studies at Texas Southern University. He is sharing an excerpt from his book, and it is titled Raza Schools, the Fight for Latino Educational Autonomy in West Texas Borderlands Town. And that chapter is about the origins of the, of the school district. A lot resonates with me, but it reminds me of going to the Texas Education Agency back when we were fighting this racist textbook. And that began because we all had all united and went to demand a Mexican American textbook and Mexican American textbooks. And one thing that blew my mind as I entered a textbook into that lane, mostly because I did not want the Texas Education Agency to say, we gave you all a chance and no one submitted a book. But it blew my mind at how easy it was. So when you talk about the, the Mexican-Americans saying, this is not that hard, I venture to say it's not that hard when the mainstream or those in power are the only ones who know how it works. Once they see that we're learning, then they complicate things. And once we're successful... Again, I'm drawing broad strokes here, but it reminds me of the Mexican American Studies curriculum in Tucson, Arizona, that was so successful, changing the graduation rate for six years, and instead of replicating it, right-wing legislators destroy it. A um, little bit of a tangent, but I do want folks to understand that your book is uh, this legacy book that reminds me of all those other instances, and like we said earlier, also so appropriate of this time. So did you hear about the the um, evolution of the creation of the school first, or did you hear about the demise of it and then go backwards? No, I, I heard about the creation of the school district first, um, and I had done so uh, through my advisor at the University of Houston, Dr. Guadalupe San Miguel, who had uh, recommended to me that I maybe pursue this topic for my dissertation when I came to the program, um, I had wanted to focus and do and do my dissertation on the high school walkouts between 68 and 72. And I wanted to focus on the San Antonio walkout, but Dr. Samuel knew then what I didn't know and what, what every historian should know now. Uh, he knew that, that, you know, with the walkouts that, that sort of had been done uh, extensively. And so that he understood that we need to uncover what we might reference today as hidden histories. 
Uh, and so this was a, a, a topic that was hidden. I had never heard of the school district before. I had been to Del Rio several times, but not much. And even all the times that I was there in Del Rio, I had never heard of this district. Mm. And it was just, I mean, it was just buried and just erased. Uh, at least it was my experience that it was erased from academia. Others knew about it. Uh, I think one of San Miguel's former students had also produced a, a research project of it. Uh, and it was he who recommended it to me. And so when I sort of switched lanes a bit, because it wasn't the topic I wanted to do, but when I switched lanes a bit, I, I immediately fell in love with the spirit of resistance and agency that existed mm -hmm. in this community. And uh, I, I immediately appreciated uh, the wherewithal on the part of these former students, these alumni, uh, who began to document and create their own history and create spaces that would preserve their history and then use those spaces to promote their history. Like they have, for example, a beautiful museum. Uh, they got several museums and, and, and a library there that documents a lot of this history. But I would argue that the most extensive collection of historical artifacts and memorabilia exists in this museum, in this community. They call it a, a, a community center, uh, or but, it, but it's, it's a museum wow. is what it is. And and um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was, I learned about the school uh, and a lot of this was sort of gleaned through oral histories uh, because my introduction, my informal introduction to this community and to the school district was through an interview. And then my formal introduction was through other people's uh, master's theses and dissertations, uh, present, presently written right in 2006 and 2008 and things like that. And then uh, others who wrote master's thesis back in 1952 who were writing about Wow. This. Uh, and these are former teachers and principals who were writing the history of these communities. And so that, that was my formal introduction to the history of the school district. And then my informal was a platica with a storyteller who was just kind of showing me the ropes uh, and kind of just walking me through a chronological order, telling me about significant moments in this community's history. And so so I learned it in chronological order. Um, mm. and, and it's an interesting question you asked because I had interviewed several persons for this in, for this project uh, and uh, every time that I sat down to interview them, they immediately want to start in 1971. And, and, and I wanted to say, well, let's go back. Let's go back to earlier decades and let's go back to maybe to your youth and maybe the youth of, you know, when your parents arrived or where they're from. And, but everyone wanted to start in 70, 71, because that was a thing that was still most sort of, it, it, they they still carry it was it was a, it was a cross that they still carried. Wow! And while that happened almost fifty years ago, it, for them, it's it happened almost two weeks ago. And and I remember in several of these interviews, uh, you know that that's a lot. Some of these storytellers, some of these narrators, uh, would break down in tears and cry as they were sharing that very sort of traumatic moment in their history. I mean, these are these are men and women who. Uh, braved the, the 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 daily struggles of having to finance a school, and these are persons who were World War II and Korean mm -hmm. War veterans, and who faced fear and would cry uh, like children as they began to explain the the loss of their schools following that consolidation order in '71. It was an interesting question because it reminded me how everybody wanted to start there, and I said, "Well, yeah, that's we can start there, but I like to try to get sort of this." Let's get this story too, because I want to talk about what gets us there. But I mean, it was it was that's how I learned about it. Sort of these informal conversations uh, with community people. That's so powerful because of the, uh, like you say, you're unearthing this history, 
Um, it's so alive in folks because of the crisis that even they maybe perhaps overlooked the, the golden era. And I think for, for us in the modern times, it perhaps reminds us of how great our communities can be, um, that we do have the talent to accomplish anything, that we are intellectuals, but it appears that there's this ongoing uh, struggle to, to maintain our history and culture, um, how powerful they are able to recover it. chatting with Dr. Jesus Jesse Esparza. His powerful book is called Raza Schools, The Fight for Latino Educational Autonomy in the West Texas Border Town. He will be featured as part of the Texas Author Series 2023 at the Latino Bookstore at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center. Every second Friday of the month, you can count on a great event. And his presentation will take place on Friday, November 10th, in conjunction with Macri. So we're looking forward to team up for them on this excellent book. Dr. Spaza, can you tell folks how they can uh, look up more information on the book or perhaps find out where you're doing other readings? Yes, no, thank you, Tony. Uh, so yes, this book can be found on the website uh, for uh, of the University of Oklahoma Press. That's OUPress.com. Uh, they have where you can purchase there uh, electronically or you can call the 1-800 number that you'll see there on the website. Uh, you can buy it at any other bookstore chains that that can carry it. If you're okay, if your listeners are okay with purchasing from Amazon, I know that Amazon carries it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I would also maybe ask that you uh, ask your local libraries to get this book and ask your local bookstores to get this book. Um, I think that, uh, and not just this book. I mean, all the books uh, that that uh, you have uh, heard about, all the books that you know that are banned books. Mm -hmm. uh, let's do our part uh, to to make sure that these are still being read and still have that we still have access to them, um, and and that would go a, a, a great way to really help uh, sort of continue this sort of long history of of spirited resistance and mm -hmm. and, and and resistance against erasure because that's what this community was doing. It was fighting against erasure in in forming this organization and running this museum, and then now creating spaces. For me to come down and give book talks and and uh to your second point tony i i will be in del rio this saturday uh wow. 21st uh at the library the, at the the valverde county library doing a book talk and a book signing okay. and a lot of the research that i did i did in that facility and and now the facility is asking me to come and share uh some of the findings with them and people will be there to get their books, to get their signatures. They made me feel like a rock star. Right. <laughs> you are. You are. Uh, but yeah, I would be there uh, on the 21st. I'm going back to Del Rio uh, in November. Um, and I'll be there on the 18th. And I'll be at another site in the city at the museum, uh, the Whitehead Memorial Museum. That's there where I conducted a lot of the research as well. Uh, uh, Ms. Barbara Galvan at the Valverde County Library has been super instrumental. Uh, she reminds me in many ways of you, Tony. Uh, and then Mr. Michael Diaz over at the museum uh, has been uh, a pleasure to work with, and he's super supportive of this work as well. Wow. Uh, and I just, you know, uh, these are not easy conversations to have sometimes, mm -hmm. but I appreciate the space that you, Tony, and others have provided me uh, to, to, to share this work. It's important work, and I should not be the only one 
that knows about San Felipe. And this should not, you know, I want somebody to say one day, wait a minute, you're wrong, Espada San. That district is not the only district that is the first of its kind. Mm -hmm. I found another one. And I want people to find others and then others and then others and others so that we realize that Mexican-Americans are doing this everywhere, not just Mm -hmm. in the borderlands. Well, let's see who takes up your challenge. Uh, We appreciate your, your passion and your brilliance for this topic. And it's so exciting to see it come full circle where you're going back to the very community that you're archiving and, and adding new life to, to this story. So thank you for all you do. We look forward to your continued success. We look forward to spreading the book. And uh, this is all about community culture capital. So on that note, I do want to give a shout out to our crew. Rodrigo Bravo is our sound engineer who makes us sound great through his skills with audio. Well, I want to also thank Roxana Guzman, who's our multi-platform producer, and all the other organizers, workers, and artists that we work with. Of course, we want to thank KPFT, Houston's Community Station. We want to give you one last chance, perhaps for now, uh, to do a donation to the station in the name of Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Heaven to Say. You can go to kpft.org or call 713-526-5738 so that we can broadcast across the fourth largest city in America, some of this hidden history that we want to make known. I'm Tony Diaz, the Libre Traficante. So glad to join you and looking forward to seeing you behind the book. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you to the crew. Nos vemos until next time. Bye.